0: We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness.
1: All right, welcome back to Into the Fray. You have to forgive my voice this week. Every time the weather changes, I get really bad allergies, and then my voice sounds like I have a cold. So no, this is not me trying to fake a really good radio voice. This is uh, probably just the trees. I don't know. I was really hoping to turn today's show into a more positive note. I focused a lot on the less awesome goings-on because those are the things that I thought really needed to see the light of day. This week, my hope, my goal, um, I wanted to run a show on all the things that I'd like to see President Trump do to turn us back toward freedom. So, maybe next week, eh? Before I get into the mess that's been this week, I'm not going to cover all the details of everything that's going on. Frankly, it would be redundant. There are plenty of good outlets to turn to for up-to-the-minute news. I'm trying to give some depth and perspective to what I think are some of the most important topics we're facing. It's likely that I'll bring up events that you're unfamiliar with, and if that happens, when that happens, go look it up. No kidding. Everything I talk about here has been thoroughly covered. If you're not sure where to look, I'll give you some names. Tim Pool, Dan Bongino, Glenn Beck, Ben Shapiro, The Post Millennial, Dinesh D'Souza. If you want to see more in the street news, you've got Richie McGinnis, Elijah Schaefer, Andy Ngo, George Ventura, and that's just off the top of my head. There are more. The internet stripped legacy media of their monopoly on information, and the free market gave us back our freedom of the press. That's a gift we should not squander. What's happening right now will determine the course of human events. Volumes will be written about 2020 and probably 2021. This election determines whether America is choosing self-determination and rejecting corruption, or whether America is choosing corruption, socialism, and, as F.A. Hayek put it, the road to serfdom. The monumental effects of this year should not be underestimated. Consider some of the seemingly minor events that have changed the course of human history in the recent past. The choice to financially back the Entente, the allies of World War I, led to a fiscal interest, maybe even an imperative, to overcome the Central Powers, Or the massive loans we issued would have been a total loss and imperiled our financial stability as a nation. Our subsequent involvement in the Great War completely changed the course of European power politics enabled the Entente nations to take out their wrath on the Germans and set the stage for World War II. Not bad for a few bankers and policymakers, right? I believe it was Obama who said, elections have consequences. That may be the only truthful statement he made while in public office. Elections absolutely do have consequences, and, thanks to the internet and the ease by which information is now communicated, the tone, at least, of those consequences is fairly predictable. Look at what a candidate says in smaller events when they don't think too many people are watching. Look at who supports them, and who's against them, and look at what those people espouse. The election of Franklin Roosevelt led the United States into a socialist pit that kicked the legs out from under our market economy and put regulations and programs in place that we still suffer from today. This is a case study in leftist power politics. The Mises Institute published a fantastic article in 1995 that captured the reality of that election. Robert Higgs wrote, There's no doubt that Roosevelt changed the character of the American government. For the worse. Many of the reforms of the 1930s remain embedded in policy today. Acreage allotments, price supports, and marketing controls in agriculture, extensive regulation of private securities, federal intrusion into union management relations, government lending and insurance activities, the minimum wage, national unemployment insurance, social security and welfare payments, production and sale of electrical power by the federal government, fiat money, the list goes on. Think about that. The Constitution was written to put hard limits on government intrusion in our lives. The Roosevelt-era policies still affect our food supply, and it opened the door to the LBJ-era policies that have so many dependent on the government dole. In short, it was a transition from people solving their own problems, something we're fully capable of doing when given the chance, to the federal government becoming responsible for solving a great many problems that they're ill-suited to. The article continues. In their understanding of the Depression, Roosevelt and his economic advisors had cause and effect reversed. They did not recognize that prices had fallen because of the Depression. They believed that the Depression prevailed because prices had fallen. The obvious remedy, then, was to raise prices, which they decided to do by creating artificial shortages. Hence arose a collection of crackpot policies designed to cure the Depression by cutting back on production. The scheme was so patently self-defeating that it's hard to believe anyone seriously believed it would work. The goofiest application of the theory had to do with the price of gold. Starting with the bank holiday and proceeding through a massive gold-buying program, Roosevelt abandoned the gold standard the bedrock restraint on inflation and government growth. Hang with me on this. I promise this little history lesson matters. It matters a great deal. Back to the article. Having hobbled the banking system and destroyed the gold standard, he turned next to agriculture. Working with the politically influential Farm Bureau and the Bernard Barak gang, Roosevelt pushed through the Agricultural Adjustments Act of 1933. It provided for acreage and production controls, restrictive marketing agreements, and regulatory licensing of processors and dealers to eliminate unfair practices and charges. It authorized new lending, taxed processors of agricultural commodities, and rewarded farmers who cut back production. A while back, when the COVID lockdown was really hitting its stride, Elon Musk went on the Joe Rogan podcast. At the time, there were loud calls to give money to the people, and he pointed out the fallacy of that solution. All the money in the world doesn't compensate for not producing. You can't buy what isn't being made. We'd shut down production— Money is an intermediary for the exchange of goods and services. Shut down those goods and services, kill production and ban interaction, and all the money in the world is worthless. Control prices and you create a mismatch between the value of goods and services and the value of currency. That plays all kinds of fun games with what you are and are not able to buy. Just ask the Soviets. Back to the article. Industry was virtually nationalized under Roosevelt's National Industrial Recovery Act of 1933. Like most New Deal legislation, this resulted from a compromise of special interests, businessmen seeking higher prices and barriers to competition, labor unionists seeking government sponsorship and protections, social workers wanting to control working conditions and forbid child labor, and the proponents of massive spending on public works. To administer the act, Roosevelt established the National Recovery Administration, but the initial enthusiasm evaporated when the NRA did not deliver, and for obvious reasons. This is something we should have learned from. It didn't work. Not then, not every other time it was tried. And nothing has changed to make us any different. The lesson was there, but the history narrative pushed by the leftist ideologues is that FDR was barely short of a deity, and generally speaking, we don't tend to seek stuff out on our own. We really do need to do a better job of doing our own homework. FDR is a hero to the left, which really should be enough on its own to get you looking into him and what he did. The idea of centrally controlled industry was so disastrous that the Supreme Court cut it down after two years. But the damage had been done. When government and business collude, they place barriers to competition and use public resources to advance what should be private industries. These exploitations cause problems in the market that ripple out. The collusion of policymakers and private industry has reached a point now where those ripples are becoming full-on waves. This, I think, is the cast most people refer to when they say establishment. Back to the article. Yet after all this, the grand promise of an end to suffering was never fulfilled. As the state sector drained the private sector, controlling it in alarming detail, the economy continued to wallow in depression. The combined impact of Herbert Hoover's and Roosevelt's interventions meant that the market was never allowed to correct itself. Far from having gotten us out of the depression, FDR prolonged and deepened it, and brought unnecessary suffering to millions. How did Trump bring our economy roaring back after nearly a decade of hardship? How did he shift the market so that there was room for so many more people to find good employment? The same way Harding and Coolidge did it when faced with a much deeper depression. The same way Reagan did it when he was left with Carter's mess. They didn't. They just got government out of it. What they knew that most people seem to miss is that central control doesn't work, but market forces do. They didn't fix the market. They just got out of the way. Back to the article. And this is the cornerstone of our part of the solution. Even more tragic is the lasting legacy of Roosevelt. The commitment of both masses and elites to individualism, free markets, and limited government suffered a blow in the 1930s from which it has yet to fully recover. The theory of the mixed economy is still the dominant ideology backing government policy. In place of old beliefs about liberty, we have greater toleration of, and even a positive demand for, collectivist schemes that promise social security, protections from the rigors of market competition, and something for nothing. If we study FDR with admiration, the lesson we take away is this. Government is an immensely useful means for achieving one's private aspirations. And resorting to this reservoir of potentially appropriable benefits is perfectly legitimate. If we don't learn this lesson of history quickly, we're going to repeat it. The Biden-Harris platform, the Democrat platform, represents the hardest, furthest push into government control since FDR, and it's following the same socialist playbook. Let's start with the utter destruction of our way of life. That's usually a good place, right? Biden and Harris have been very clear that they want to rid us of fossil fuels. From their website. On day one, Biden will sign a series of new executive orders with unprecedented reach that will go well beyond the Obama-Biden administration platform and put us on the right track. He will demand that Congress enact legislation in the first year of his presidency. What is the Obama benchmark he wants to go well beyond? You know, when I was asked earlier about uh, the issue of coal... Uh, you know, under my plan uh, of a cap-and-trade system, electricity rates would necessarily skyrocket. One thing we have to establish before getting into this is that our ability to improve the way we live is directly linked to the stability and growth of our economy. People who are worried about how they're going to get to work tomorrow are not concerned about, nor do they have the resources to invest in, cleaner ways to get to work. Cars are far more efficient and far less pollutant now than they were 20 years ago. Why? Because our economic prosperity has allowed us to prioritize it. We have cleaner cars because people wanted to buy cleaner cars and had the extra cash on hand to pay for them. What allows our society to thrive such that we can support these advancements? Abundant, cheap energy. Fossil fuels. Energy is our ability to do work. We have an overabundance of food because fossil fuel-driven tractors can do the work of hundreds of oxen-driven plows. Electricity, primarily created using fossil fuels, and natural gas, a fossil fuel, heat our homes. They do the work of felling, sectioning, hauling, splitting, and stacking wood, and burn far cleaner. Homes are built more efficiently by the use of computer software, which runs on electricity, produced by fossil fuels. Our transportation is powered by fossil fuels. Our lighting, our refrigeration, our medical equipment, everything that comes together to make our standard of living what it is, runs on fossil fuels. Plastics are fossil fuels. Now. We know that oil is a limited resource, and we can't consume it at this rate forever. This leaves us three choices. One, keep using fossil fuels, with no plans to change until we run out. Then return to the dark ages. Nobody wants plan one. Two, force the end of fossil fuel use and watch our capacity to do work collapse. Then panic and return to fossil fuels, ending up right back where we started. This is the Biden-Harris plan. Three, Use fossil fuels to power the creation engine that is already innovating alternative power sources. This is the free market plan. With solar panels and enough Tesla wall battery banks, much of the U.S. could already go off-grid, all thanks to the work we were able to do using fossil fuels. Battery tech that would make wind and solar viable large-scale is in the works. Thing is, this isn't magic. For people to expend their limited income on solar panels and battery banks, they have to first be comfortable enough in their ability to provide for their survival necessities. Good news? Just as we saw with computers, big TVs, and smartphones, that technology is becoming cheaper as the market adopts it and provides further capital for development. In time, most people probably will have solar panels and battery banks, and we'll need far less oil to power our lives. We can do green the progressive way and end up with more cylindras, or we can do it the free market way and end up with more Teslas. When the private sector fails at something, a few investors lose their investment, and then someone with a better idea tries somewhere else. When the government fails at something, it throws more and more of our money at it. Money it thoughtlessly took from you and from me, trying to make it work. That plan didn't work for FDR, and it didn't work for Obama. The market has to be able to sustain an innovation for it to succeed. The secret to alternative energy is a robust and growing economy. Until we innovate our way out of them, the secret to a robust and growing economy is fossil fuels. The Dems also want to socialize medicine. I don't care how many times Biden says that a public health care option isn't socialized medicine. It is. When taxpayers pay for a social program, it's socialized. Social security is socialized retirement. Medicare is socialized medicine. Welfare is socialized charity. Like it? Don't like it? It's still socialism. What did Obamacare do? It gave the federal government control over the healthcare field. The regulatory authority they gave themselves to implement Obamacare reached into nearly every aspect of the industry. You would not believe the bureaucracy required to keep a hospital in compliance with all the government mandates. When it was first introduced, Obamacare was touted as a public option that would not affect your private insurance. Don't you remember? If you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. If you like your health care plan, you can keep your health care plan. Oh, that was until anything about it changed, because Obamacare gave them the power to enforce their designs on everyone, eventually. It didn't take long before people did lose their doctor and their plan. Biden's website touts, From the time right before the Affordable Care Act's key coverage-related policies went into effect to the last full year of the Obama-Biden administration in 2016, the number of Americans lacking health insurance fell from 44 million to 27 million, an almost 40% drop. I was one of those 17 million people. I was young. I was in good health. I didn't need health insurance to get by. What I did need was rent, food, and gas, and the ability to save a little money so I could breathe. What little healthcare I did need, I paid for out of pocket. In one case, I suffered a pretty serious injury, and it was still cheaper to make payments to the hospital for a few months than it would have been had I paid the insurance premiums for all those years. I was also extremely poor. At the time, I could barely pay rent, and I was suddenly burdened with hundreds of dollars of mandatory insurance premiums each month. Ironically, having health insurance forced on me was actually detrimental to my health, because I couldn't afford to eat as well. Medicare for all would be a fully public option meaning that the government pays every dime, meaning that you and I pay every dime. While insurance premiums would go away, they would be replaced, and then some, by taxes. When it falters and fails, like every other socialized medicine attempt ever, the government will do what it does with every problem, throw more money at it, money they take from us. You can't not pay your taxes. You can not pay for food or repairs on your car or a place to live with enough bedrooms for your family. From the Washington Times, a report from Stanford University's Hoover Institution found that Mr. Biden's taxation, insurance, regulatory, and energy proposals would, in the long run, reduce full-time equivalent employment by about 3%, or 4.9 million jobs. The Biden program would also shrink real gross domestic product per capita by 8%, resulting in a $6,500 hit by 2030 in median income per household. In other words, if you don't lose your job outright— you're going to see a huge drop in income. Back to the article. He hits the economy from three directions at the same time. He punishes work, he punishes investment, and he makes us less productive, said University of Chicago economics professor Casey Mulligan. And people understand from living through the Obama years that Obama just kind of hit you in a bunch of different ways, and it started to add up in the end. Once again, like FDR, the left is trying to lead the donkey by the tail. But they know that. What we have to accept is that this is not ineptitude. It's purposeful. Hillary Clinton herself argued that the path to control wasn't agitating from the outside until the structure fell. It was more effective to get inside and take over. The goal of the socialists is to whittle away societal protections and increase state involvement in private affairs until the masses are left exposed and vulnerable and easy pickings. Each social program gives the left more access to you and your money and regulates, controls, another aspect of your life. Make no mistake, if Medicare for All is implemented, it won't be an option, it will become the option. Try opting out of Social Security. Tell me how that works out for you. When they've got healthcare, they'll move on to another part of your life. Socialism is the grift to end all grifts. It's designed to control mass populations, a piece at a time, until they are either too powerless or too dependent to resist total authoritarianism. Then you get full communism. It's all a grift to transfer the wealth and labor of the masses to the control of a few elites. There's no benevolent interest in our welfare. It's a blatant power grab. There was a lecture given by Hennings Prentice Jr. at the University of Pennsylvania in 1943. I want to read a segment for you. He could have written this yesterday. At the stage between apathy and dependency, men always turn in fear to economic and political panaceas, remedies. New conditions, it's claimed, require new remedies. Under such circumstances, the competent citizen is certainly not a fool if he insists upon using the compass of history when forced to sail uncharted seas. Usually, so-called new remedies are not new at all compulsory planned economy, for example, was tried by the Chinese some three millennia ago, and by the Romans in the early centuries of the Christian era. It was applied in Germany, Italy, and Russia long before the present war broke out. Yet it is being seriously advocated today as a solution of our economic problems in the United States. Its proponents confidently assert that government can successfully plan and control all major business activity in the nation, and still not interfere with our political freedom and our hard-won civil and religious liberties." The lessons of history all point in exactly the reverse direction. When President Trump cut taxes and freed what he could of the market, people got jobs. They got raises. They started to breathe a little again and save money. On his morning show, Stephen Crowder said he was able to hire two more employees with the money the government stopped taking. That's two more people with a good job. Now that's a very small business. Multiply that over the whole market, and that's a lot of happy people. I know a few of them. It's not enough just to take over industry, though. Every authoritarian knows that if they push the people too hard, the people will push back. 2020 has seen an unprecedented number of people realizing that if they don't protect themselves, no one will. With rioters going into neighborhoods, targeting people in their homes, and terrorizing people who thought they would never reach them, gun sales have skyrocketed to the point where manufacturers can't keep up with the demand, and most guns worth buying are hard or impossible to come by. Biden and Harris aren't proposing to forcibly take your means of self preservation, they're proposing to regulate it out of existence. Back in 2018, the Democrats tried to ban all semi-automatic guns nationally. Of course, it didn't go anywhere, but it did reveal a few details that are vitally important now. First, you have to understand that a semi-automatic gun is just a firearm that goes bang once each time you pull the trigger. These are not machine guns. They don't have any special abilities. They're designed to fire once when you pull the trigger and then chamber another round so that the gun is ready to fire again. This encompasses nearly every handgun currently made and nearly every effective home defense firearm in existence. From a Washington Examiner article, this is a tweet from a Democrat representative. Today I joined at Rep. Cicilline and 150-plus of my colleagues to introduce the assault weapons ban. It's time for Congress to listen to the will of the majority of Americans and pass sensible legislation to get these weapons of war off our streets. Hashtag never again. Hashtag MSD strong. Deutsch tweeted. Representative Cicilline confirmed the assessment. Assault weapons. Were made for one purpose, Ciceline said in a statement. They're designed to kill as many people as possible in a short amount of time. They do not belong in our communities. Assault weapons, you say? I thought assault weapons were just the scary-looking ones that crazy people get to defend their homes and families. No. Both of these statements were made in reference to the semi-automatic firearm ban. They both clearly state that they consider every semi-automatic weapon an assault weapon. Now, sleepy, creepy, sniffy old Joe knows he won't get an outright ban through. His website doesn't propose an outright ban. From Breitbart. As Breitbart previously reported, it could also be mandated that so-called assault weapons, such as the AR-15, be registered under the NFA if these policies were lawfully enacted. Theoretically, this could mean that if a gun owner has already purchased one AR-15 and five high-capacity magazines, the owner could be required to pay $1,200 in federal taxes, assuming he or she does not participate in any proposed buyback program. Do the math on that one. How many semi-automatic firearms do you own? This burden would be too much for many, if not most, gun owners to bear. At that point, the regulation is a ban. This means that law-abiding citizens would have to decide if they're going to be disarmed or no longer be law-abiding citizens. That's not an enviable choice. Back to the article. Mark W. Smith, a presidential scholar and senior fellow at the King's College in New York City, concluded, When it comes to legal overreach, I am confident that a Biden administration would go all in in their efforts to disarm Americans. Do you remember when they said that only conspiracy nuts thought they were coming after your guns? They just wanted some common-sense reform. They have common-sense reformed us to the point where you have to be crazy or willfully blind to think they won't come for your guns. They're announcing it openly. This is from an interview with Anderson Cooper. Remember that the Democrats already established that they consider assault weapons to be any semi-automatic firearm. So to to, to gun owners out there who say, well, a Biden administration means they're going to come for my guns.
0: Bingo. You're right if you have an assault weapon. The fact of the matter is they should be illegal, period.
1: But wait, it gets better. Back to the previous article. Joe Biden has been unspecific about his own definition of the exact number of rounds constituting a high-capacity magazine. Last year, for example, he declared the existence of magazines that can hold multiple bullets in them. Well, what constitutes multiple? He keeps hearkening back to the 90s ban. That was a 10-round limit. If you have four armed home invaders breaching your back door, 10 rounds doesn't go very far. Biden's website has this fun section. Hold gun manufacturers accountable. In 2005, then-Senator Biden voted against the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, but gun manufacturers successfully lobbied Congress to secure its passage. This law protects these manufacturers from being held civilly liable for their products, a protection granted to no other industry. Biden will prioritize repealing this protection. This is a verifiable lie and an open attempt to regulate gun manufacturers out of existence. The Biden campaign is conflating two different types of liability. It's a clever deception. If your laundry detergent manufacturer makes a chemistry mistake and you start getting boils from your clothes, they can be held legally responsible. If a gun manufacturer makes a manufacturing mistake that causes you injury, they can be held legally responsible. If you beat someone to death with a full bottle of laundry detergent, the manufacturer cannot be held responsible for your actions. Likewise, if you harm someone with a firearm. If firearm manufacturers were held responsible for what others choose to do with their product, they would have to immediately close their doors and production of these products you use to defend your home would cease. It's no different than if hammer manufacturers were held liable for the murders committed with hammers. And there are many. The Democrats would argue, but hammers aren't made to murder people. Neither are guns. They're made as a defensive tool. There are a few hurdles meant to stand between us and tyranny. One is the foundation of representative government, something that if they succeed in stealing this election, will have been overcome. Another is the separation of powers, which will also be overcome if this election scheme works. They need only implement the process a few more times before they will have the White House and Congress, and once they have the White House and Congress, they will have the courts shortly. In a world where your vote means nothing because they'll cheat the election anyway, where you have no effective means to protect yourself from criminals or stand up against the tyrannical government, where your ability to put food on the table is entirely at the mercy of the central elites and you and your friends are so dependent on those elites for basic survival needs that you dare not oppose them, you are a slave. This is the world they intend to build. It's Stalin's world. It's Mao's world. It's the world of the Kim family. It's the world of the National Socialist German Workers' Party. It's not the world of the little people. In that world, the little people exist to ensure the elites live well. This is socialism. It's just one big con. That world is precisely what our founding fathers were defending us from. They built a system that trusted no one with power. Power was separated and balanced, not just by the three branches of government, but by the press, by the people, armed and ready to defend their freedom, and by the limitations of the Constitution and the hard stops put in place by the Bill of Rights. They did not fail us. We failed them. Subtly, gradually, carelessly. The people who voted for FDR, they suffered under his policies. Their children suffered under his policies long after he was gone. Their grandchildren suffered under the remnants of his policies, and now their great-grandchildren get a turn. A president lasts four, maybe eight years. But the good or the damage they do lasts far longer. Unfortunately, scars seem to last longer than triumphs. Reagan set the socialists back 40 years, We're still suffering from the ill effects of FDR almost 80 years later, and Wilson more than a hundred. How many generations are going to suffer the damage done by Obama? If Biden, or I should say if Kamala gets in, how many generations will suffer because of them? This thing isn't over. Thousands of dead people have been found to have voted in Nevada. The election board broke the law in Pennsylvania after a Pennsylvania court tried to legislate from the bench. Mail-in ballots have been mishandled, now requiring investigation and recount. In Michigan— It was found that 6,000 votes had been altered from Trump to Biden by a software glitch. I'll put that in air quotes. Software glitch. In one county. One. One county. 47 other counties in the state use the same software, as do all of the swing states. All of those votes now need to be hand-counted and confirmed. There are two likely roads at this point. One is that the investigations and recounts blow the lid off the Democrats' attempt to steal this election, and the real count comes out. If that happens, it's almost certainly a Trump victory. The fact that every major error, glitch, and mistake has been in Biden's favor tells me we're in for a revealing week. The second road I find likely is that mistakes and fraud are uncovered in the states in question and cannot be resolved. Then I believe the courts will simply invalidate the election results from those states, denying either candidate a victory in the Electoral College, and sending the decision to the House of Representatives. At that point, Trump has the numbers. Public sentiment will likely determine how far these investigations and the court rulings go. There has been an overt suppression of transparency in the ballot count. The so-called glitch that magically turns thousands of Trump votes into Biden votes is in software apparently used by a majority of the states. In some precincts, there were more ballots cast than registered voters. These frauds and failures add up to a stolen election, one that can still be remedied by proper investigation and legal discovery. Public sentiment is a powerful force, one which the left loves to utilize. Now it's our turn. There needs to be overwhelming public pressure to do the right thing. This has not been a free or fair election. That needs to be remedied. The left is already mobilizing, preparing for retribution once they are in power. AOC tweeted out, Is anyone archiving these Trump sycophants for when they try to downplay or deny their complicity in the future? I foresee decent probability of many deleted tweets, writings, photos, in the future. To which Michael Simpson replied, Yes, we are. The Trump Accountability Project. Every administration staffer, campaign staffer, bundler, lawyer who represented them, everyone. Remember the Trump.watch site I talked about last week? The one that identifies every person who donated to the Trump campaign? Location conveniently mapped? Now they're expanding their scope. They're already compiling an enemies list in preparation for taking power. They can't even be gracious in their assumed victory. This is not about representing America. It's not about a better life or a better future. The Democrats have become Voldemort. There is no good and evil. There is only power. And those too weak to seek it. They're compiling an enemies list. They're calling for political retribution. The craziest part is what they accuse Trump and his supporters of is all lies. They're not even bringing legitimate grievances. They just want to hurt people. From the Western Journal, on its website, the Trump Accountability Project vows, remember what they did. The world should never forget those who, when faced with a decision, chose to put their money, their time, and their reputations behind separating children from their families, encouraging racism and anti-Semitism, and negligently causing the unnecessary loss of life and economic devastation from our country's failed response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Let me break that down. 1. Trump and his supporters are not separating anyone. It's a long-standing policy put in place to protect children from traffickers and abusers. From the National Review, the Trump administration isn't changing the rules that pertain to separating an adult from the child. Those remain the same. Separation happens only if officials find that the adult is falsely claiming to be the child's parent, or is a threat to the child, or is put into criminal proceedings. So, scratch one. Encouraging racism and anti-Semitism. Nope. Nope. I hear a lot of racist pot stirring from the left, but nothing from Trump and his supporters. The few quotes they have were immediately debunked by just listening to the whole statement. So, scratch two. If you're still fooled by the very fine people hoax, you've come to the right place. Go search the whole statement and then come back. It's going to change your world. It's amazing what happens when people start doing their own homework and find out what's really going on. That's what the whole walkaway movement is built on. When you stop taking legacy media as gospel, the world opens up. Finally, negligently causing the unnecessary loss of life and economic devastation from our country's failed response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Three strikes, you're out. The COVID response rests entirely on the shoulders of the state governors. That's part of the separation of powers. That power rests with the states. President Trump assisted the state governors with everything they asked for, but he was not in a position, legally, constitutionally, to take over. And neither will Biden be if he becomes president. We now have a huge stockpile of ventilators they never ended up using. He had the New York Harbor dredged to create an up-depth for a hospital ship to respond to New York City. A hospital ship that, mind you, wasn't used. The pandemic comes down to a few very important points. One, it was a black swan event. There was no predicting it. There was no preparing for it. Two, per our system of government... The president does not have the authority to mandate a disease outbreak response. That is state jurisdiction. Three, the economic impact of the disease is the result of the state-level response. The president does not have the authority to compel states to, or not to, respond in any way. The lockdowns were a state-level response and the consequences of those policies rests with the state governments. Scratch three. Here is a group, keeping a list with the express purpose of retribution, whose grievances are verifiable lies. Again we see, there is no good and evil. There is only power. That's the left. Buckle up. This is going to be ugly no matter how the election turns out. I'm still confident that when the dust settles from all this intentional madness and confusion, Trump will be on top. But the left is going to make this ugly either way. If they win, they want political retribution. If they lose, they want revolution. I'm not saying they'll get what they want, but they're going to try. The Biden-Harris platform, central control of industry, healthcare, housing, education, altering production, distribution, earning and opportunity to ensure that equitable treatment means we all end up at the same place. Also known as communism, removing gun ownership, regardless how. And these are all part of the Biden plan on his website. They all add up to one thing, slavery. When the state controls every aspect of your environment and has stripped you of the means by which to take it back, There's nothing else to call it. Our founding fathers gave us the separation and balance of power. Central control is the antithesis of that gift. They're working as hard as they can to undo the foundations that protect us from people like them, all in the name of wealth, status, and power. The conditions we live in, the freedoms we have, the abundance enjoyed by the average person are abnormal in history and far from permanent. When it comes to government, the bad guy usually wins— History is replete with abusive kings, ambitious emperors, and violent dictators. The average person, the plebs, were generally miserable wretches living in appalling conditions with no hope their lives would improve. We are an anomaly. We were given a system that restrains the avarice of the greedy and the power-hungry, but only if we are committed to it. Know where you stand and stand firm. Don't assume that if President Trump comes out on top that he or anyone else is going to solve our problems for us. This is a national crisis that's been in the works for decades. It's going to take a lot more than just the orange man to fix it. Though if he really does lose to commie Joe, things are going to get a lot dicier. We need to restore faith and principle in our lives so that the grassroots are strong enough to change the whole field. Bear in mind, Germany was not the result of Hitler. Hitler was the result of Germany. Washington, Lincoln, and Reagan did not shape the United States so much as reflect it. We have to be what we want our nation to be the United States is not a collective. We are a massive group of individuals. If we want a free society, we can't just ask DC to give us one. We have to live the principles of a free society. Then, when the sea of people across this nation, or at least a critical mass of them, are living those principles, we will have a free society. Listen to this clip from Jordan Peterson.
0: And some of this is from clinical experience. You know, if you take people And I've told you this, and you expose them voluntarily to things that they are avoiding and are afraid of. You know, that they know they need to overcome in order to meet their goals, their self-defined goals. If you can teach people to stand up in the face of the things they're afraid of, they get stronger. And you don't know what the upper limits to that are. Because you might ask yourself, like, if for 10 years, if you didn't avoid doing what you knew you needed to do, by, the def- by your own definitions, right? Within the value structure that you've created to the degree that you've done that, what would you be like? And so, you know, you think, well, there's 9 billion, 7 billion people in the world. We're going to peak at about 9 billion, by the way, and then it'll decline rapidly, but 7 billion people in the world, and who are you? You're just one little dust moat among that 7 billion, and so it really doesn't matter what you do or don't do, but that's simply not the case. It's the wrong model, because you're at the center of a network you're a node in a network of course that's even more true now that we have social media you'll you, you'll know a thousand people at least over the course of your life and they'll know a thousand people each and that puts you one person away from a million and two persons away from a billion and so that's how you're connected and the things you do they're like dropping a stone in a pond the ripples move outward and they affect things in ways that you can't fully comprehend. And it means that the things that you do and that you don't do are far more important than you think.
1: Prentice, our university speaker from earlier, had something of note on this as well. Only constant renewal of knowledge, faith, and practice of the principles of Republican self-government by a competent citizenry can the edifice of liberty be kept intact. As Montesquieu reminded us 200 years ago, popular self-government is the most difficult of all forms of government to maintain but it yields strong men who are willing to pay the cost, the priceless blessings of liberty. To preserve itself, a representative democracy should therefore guard and encourage individual competency with every means at its command. For only intellectually competent men can fully discharge the responsibilities of citizenship, weigh new proposals of government against the lessons of history, and vote intelligently. Only physically competent men can create the wealth required to produce a rising standard of living, foster education, and finance necessary government activities— Only morally competent men will support religion, assist the incompetent, succor the unfortunate, and exercise the self-restraint necessary to preserve our free institutions. Our fathers had none of the current mystical faith in the power of government, composed of men no better, no worse on the average than the rest of us, to solve all their problems. But they did have the virtues par excellence of free men, courage and self-reliance. That is our mandate. Courage and self-reliance. We can never have liberty, nor live in a free nation, if we do not live the principles such a nation is founded on. If we don't master ourselves, the left is just itching to do it for us. This is not a moment to look at the other side and say, they're the problem. It's a time to look at ourselves and ask, what is the problem? As Peterson told us, our lives, our actions affect everyone around us. When we are positive, we bring positivity to the lives of everyone around us. When we're kind, we bring kindness to the lives of everyone around us. When we're strong, we bring strength into the lives of everyone around us. And when we're bold, we bring boldness into the lives of everyone around us. Now is the time to be positive, kind, strong, and bold. No matter how this turns out, and I have confidence the truth will out, but no matter how this turns out, our next steps remain. It's time we make ourselves a free people. It's time we live the principles, the life, of a free people. All right, I'm going to call it there. As always you can find me on Twitter and Parlor at Into the Fray. If you find value in what I'm doing please share it. I do this because it needs doing. I have a small reach by myself, but with you these ideas will spread a lot further. To the hundreds of people across the world who have tuned in, thank you. Till next week, be informed, stay safe. Don't do anything stupid. <laughs>